Hello and welcome to Listen In, a podcast about the Canadian cultural history of the Spanish Civil War. I'm your host, Karina Mikkelsen. And I'm Kevin Lavangi. And today we're going to do a mini-sode on one of the Canadians to volunteer in the Spanish Civil War. Today we're talking about Thomas Danek. Thomas Danik was born on December 11th in either 1915 or 1917. His exact date of birth has not been confirmed. He was of Ukrainian descent and born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where many Ukrainian Canadians settled. He grew up in Windsor, Ontario. We know very little about his life before he traveled to Spain. He was single and he worked as an electrician, though he also told friends that he worked as a miner. Though his date of birth is unconfirmed, he's definitely one of the younger Canadians to join the International Brigades. He could have been as young as 19 when he arrived in Spain in April of 1937. Once in Spain, he served with the Washington and Lincoln battalions. He didn't transfer to the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion when it was formed in the summer of 1937. Instead, he continued to serve with the Lincolns, where he fought alongside Benjamin Goldring, a volunteer from Brooklyn, New York. Goldring was a good friend of Danik, and it is because of their friendship that we know as much as we do about Danik. In 1984, Goldring wrote an article about his friend, Thomas Danik, Life and Death. A version of this article was published in The Volunteer, the newsletter of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. The typescript of Goldring's article made its way into the personal papers of Canadian volunteer William Kardash, which are held at the Manitoba Provincial Archives, and we are lucky enough to have a scan of this document. You can find it on our website, and we'll link to it in today's show notes. Danik first served as a battalion runner at Villanueva de Cañada. During the fighting at Brunete, Danik and Goldring were transferred to the 3rd Company, which had recently been hit hard and lost many of its soldiers. At Brunete, Danik was wounded, but he was back at the front in time to fight at Quinto and Belchite. Goldring and Danik continued to fight together, alongside their friend Al Ragnar, in the 1st Company. Danik was wounded again at Segura de los Panos, this time in the wrist. Goldring tells an anecdote about how Danik proved he was ready to return to the front. Goldring says, quote, The doctor had offered his hand. Tom had grabbed it and squeezed it so hard that the doctor had to beg him to let go, the result being that Danik was sent back from the hospital to the lines, which, from the shape of Danik's hand then, I thought to be a mistake. After this dubious medical evaluation, Goldring and Ragnar didn't see Danik again. The Windsor Star, Danik's hometown paper, reported that Danik was, quote, wounded slightly in the left arm. End quote. According to our records, he returned to Canada in December of 1938. When the Second World War began, Danik was eager to fight. As early as September 1939, he was enlisted with the Essex Scottish Regiment out of his hometown of Windsor. He was sent to England in 1940, and Goldring writes that Danik, quote, got into disciplinary problems, end quote, because his temperament did not suit the slow start to the war. The first eight months of the war are sometimes referred to as the Phony War, the Sitzkrieg, or the Droll de Guerre. During this time period, very little military action took place, and the war was fought mainly through economic sanctions. For a soldier like Danik, familiar with action, this lack of action was grating and left time for getting into trouble. In 1942, Danik participated in a raid in Dieppe. According to Goldring, quote, the raiders were shot to pieces, including Danik, who was wounded and captured by the Nazis in August of 1942. He was a prisoner of war for the remainder of the war. 
held in a camp in Stargard, Poland. By March of 1945, Danik had registered at Odessa camp, a Russian camp established to receive Allied prisoners who had been freed or escaped from German prisoner of war camps. Danik's family was very happy to hear of his safe recovery from the prisoner of war camp. One article reported that his mother, Stella, was so relieved that she sang as she worked at her factory job. But according to the Globe and Mail, by 1946, Danik had fallen out of touch with his family. They had a rough idea that he lived around Toronto or Hamilton, but they weren't in contact with him. In 1951, Danik was living in Toronto. That summer, he was laid off from his job at a radio factory. With no dependable income, Danik began holding up drugstores. It's likely that he robbed one drugstore on his own, but eventually he worked with two other accomplices. One of these accomplices was Joseph Kelly, a friend from World War II, who was also out of work and trying to make money to support his family. Danik and Kelly held up at least three drugstores together, but their luck ran out in December of 1951. They were holding up a Toronto drugstore with one other accomplice when a police constable named Deadman intervened. Goldring provides a dramatic description of the confrontation between Danik and Deadman. Quote, The constable was hidden in the partitioned-off rear of the drugstore. He emerged gun in hand when the druggist was sent by Danik into the rear. He closed the distance between the two, perhaps without any firing by either for any reason. Danik knocked the constable's gun out of the constable's hand. The constable grappled for Danik's gun, turned it, it went off once, and Danik was shot through the stomach and died. End quote. The constable was seriously wounded but survived. Kelly and the other accomplice fled the scene. Across the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail, there are many versions of what happened in that drugstore. By some accounts, Danik shot the constable six times before the constable shot Danik. By other accounts, Constable Deadman was shot by five or six bullets, some from the gun of Danik's accomplice, some from Danik's gun, and some from the constable's own gun, which may have gone off accidentally during the struggle. After Danik's death, the police sought to identify him. They published a photograph in the paper of a tattoo on his thumb. It was seen by some of Danik's army comrades. They had matching tattoos, the sign of the Essex Scottish Regiment. They had been tattooed together before the raid on Dieppe. After they identified Danik, his brothers came to confirm that the body was his. William and Walter Danik were both Ford employees from Windsor, Ontario. Walter told reporters that while he and Thomas used to be very close, Thomas had gotten into a great deal of trouble. Quote, he was brought up in a broken home and was given too much freedom of action. He had bad companions, end quote. The brothers were not surprised at all to hear about Danik's death and had anticipated reading about Danik in the paper someday, and not in a good way. One of Danik's accomplices was never found, but Joseph Kelly turned himself in a few days after the robbery. In news articles, it's clear that Danik was made out to be the leader, and Kelly presented himself as caught up in a more dangerous man's crimes. Kelly said he didn't carry a gun and was uncomfortable that Danik did. He also said that Danik didn't share the loot equally. Reports from co-workers, war buddies, and neighbors described Danik as quiet, unemployed, and a drinker. Police searched Danik's apartment after his death and found many empty beer bottles, leading them to believe that Danik and his accomplices, and I'm quoting directly from a newspaper article here, had a, quote, beer party right before the deadly holdup. In an article about his friend, Goldring provides testimonials to Danik's character. Danik's buddies from the Second World War, quote, were surprised by his fate and claimed that his war record had been good. One friend described Danik as a good pal, and another said he was a first-class fighting man. They all attested to his courage in wartime, although one objected to Danik's commitment to communism, saying he was a, quote, bad egg with a good service record. Goldring quotes Danik's comrade in the Spanish Civil War, Al Ragnar. Ragnar said, quote, 
I knew Danik as a very courageous fighter. You could rely on him all the way, a truly great friend and soldier, end quote. Danik was survived by his mother, Stella, his sister, Leda, and at least two brothers, Walter and William. That's interesting because in a lot of the other people we talk about, like, they're a bad egg because they're not good enough communists, but because this is a Second World War comrade for quoting, he's a bad egg because he's right. a communist. <laughs> that was the... Like, the yeah. values shift very quickly. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the, the short episode that I put out a, a week ago, I guess, at this point, or maybe more, um, <laughs> That comes up a lot, just like the the way in which the like political commitments are described in this newsletter of uh, the Loyal Edmonton Regiment of the mm-hmm. Spanish Civil War vets is very like they obfuscated a lot. I guess I would say <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're very careful to not mention it too openly. Goldring himself was deeply upset by Danik's death, though he didn't learn about it until the early 1980s, more than 30 years after it happened. He learned about it from fellow Spanish Civil War veteran Leo Burke. Goldring wrote Burke to ask if he knew where Danik was. Burke confessed that he'd read about Danik's death in 1951. Goldring was confused as to why Burke didn't look into Danik's death at the time, and Burke explained that he didn't want to get involved in a criminal case. This made Goldring angry for a while, and he apologized when he sent Burke his article about Danik a couple of years later. Goldring and Burke both agreed that Danik was a wonderful guy. That's especially, we were just talking about this, but in 1951, you're a veteran of the Spanish Civil War, like McCarthyism is at its height. You're not going to go, I mean, I guess this would have been in the Canadian context, but still, you're not going to go poking around in a dead mm-hmm. former comrade's, like, you know what I mean? It's not, yeah, it's not true. like you're going to do anything to ameliorate his condition once he's been, once he's been shot. It's kind of hard yeah. to blame Burke for wanting to be a little hands off. Yeah. One of the interesting things about the newspaper coverage is that it's mentioned that both men, Joseph Kelly and Thomas Danick, are veterans of the Second World War. And it's mentioned that Danick is a veteran of the Spanish Civil War. But Joseph Kelly went to one of his commanding officers after the shooting and, like, sought counsel. And that's, like, written about a lot. (laughs) Like, it was, like, a noble thing to do. Like, a very, I don't know, stand-up veteran thing to do is go talk to your commanding officer and be like, how do I deal with this situation I got into? And then do the right thing. Up there with, like, and then he went to confession. Exactly, yeah. yeah. (laughs) The military version of going to confession. Although I guess militaries have chaplains, so... (laughs) Goldring published his article in The Volunteer in March 1985. Here is the opening from that article. Quote, Our lives take many turns. There can be passage back and forth from one social strata to another. I have heard it said that banditry is the unorganized war of the poor against the rich. It is a faulty generalization with a kernel of truth. Faulty because banditry is more often an attack of the poor upon the poor. Truthful insofar as it takes note of a desperate thrashing about, a rebellion, against acquiescence to the subjugations which are the companions of impoverishment." Unquote. One of the things that struck me about the media coverage of Danik's death is the steady diminishing of his character. At first he was an unknown man, but soon they released more details, that he had a history of drinking, that he was unemployed, that he was supposedly the ringleader of these holdups, that he might have withheld money from his accomplices. Nowadays, this is a very clear tactic used in the wake of police shootings and citizens' deaths at the hands of police. Just as quickly as media and police reveal details about past crimes or released mugshots, activists critique these representations and offer counter-narratives. Graduation photos, testimonials from the communities that valued these victims, descriptions of their hopes and dreams, of everything the victims accomplished and everything they were working for. Activists work to make these victims grievable, 
while mainstream media and police often work to make these murders appear as justified. But then again, when I look back at Danik's story, I wonder about the bias behind my own reading. Should it matter to me that he was a drinker or unemployed or out of touch with his family? Do these details really count as diminishing his character or are they just legitimate parts of who he was? And do these details make him any less grievable? If anything, his, his unemployment is such a sympathetic trait in this particular case, yeah. right? Because it, it's there's a very clear... He wasn't he wasn't holding up drugstores when he was employed. <laughs> he was laid off and then, yeah. you know, got desperate. Mm -hmm. Obviously knew how to handle a gun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well trained at handling a gun. Yeah, then turned to turned to that to, to you know make ends meet. I guess and it's a yeah. I mean, I think Goldring's quote is really kind of incredible too. Um, yeah, it really is. Unorganized war of the poor against the rich. And yeah, just, yeah. I think it's I think it's good to contextualize this in terms of the way in which in the wake of any sort of like police or official state sanctioned violence it's important to immediately dredge up whatever you can about this about this person to, to kind of smear them um, yeah yeah whereas uh, very little is ever revealed about the sh shooter i.e the policeman right in this case constable deadman was presented as quite the hero yeah i mean i guess the most remarkable thing about this is how it it comes up 30 years later, yeah, um, which fits well, I guess, with the first wave of, of commemoration of the volunteers mm -hmm. who went to Spain starts, sorry, I should say like the first kind of uh, mainstream open commemoration yeah. outside of the left, mm -hmm. like starts in what, the 70s, yeah, late 60s, maybe. Um, and that would be a good time for people like Goldring to be looking for their former comrades. Yeah, yeah, and then it makes it to the 80s, and you have to wonder what provoked this. Was he was he trying to sit down to write a memoir? Was he interested yeah. in in reaching out with, with a whole bunch of people from his life who he'd lost touch with, or was it a very yeah. specific Spanish Civil War-related thing? Um, yeah. Lots of questions about that. Um, and it's also interesting that the third accomplice was never found. Um, well, you kind of wonder why Kelly... Turned himself in. Yeah. yeah. Maybe he thought that once they searched Danik's apartment, he would be identified. Um, in some reports, he seemed to be laid off from the same radio factory, but right. I think, I'm not sure if that's true. I feel like um, they were laid off separately and then ran into each other because they were friends from the war. Right. Um, yeah. Or maybe he was just a noble spirit. Yeah moved by his commanding officer to turn himself in. I don't know why I'm so like down on Joseph Kelly. I don't know him. It's not like well, he, he, he kinda, was a he, better person. He throws so, his like, friend into the bus. Yeah, sure. but his friend was already dead. And that's also true. Joseph Kelly went to prison for a while. Yeah. So that's, I'm not a fan of people being incarcerated. <laughs> so <laughs> sorry, Mr. Kelly. So this was the, probably the saddest volunteer story. That, like in in the long run, in terms of someone who survived the war and then made it home. Although there are, we made note of a couple others who uh, came home only to die in like a sanitarium or a couple yeah. in uh, like a mental hospital uh, yeah. in in the forties. Suicide or liver disease, which mm -hmm. has to do with drinking and PTSD. I'm mm -hmm. sure. Definitely, you would you would say that this is the most sort of dramatic end for a a volunteer, except for. The volunteer. I don't think he uh, quite deserves an entire episode uh, to himself. So I'll just uh, shoehorn it in here. Uh, and it's a volunteer who was born in 
St. John, New Brunswick, where I'm from. So I thought, oh, great. Like that's, I should maybe look into getting a plaque put up somewhere. Like that's, that's so interesting. Did you find out something that made him not plaque? Yeah. Right? So he, after he only lived in St. John for a little while. Yeah, his name was Saul Cohen. He was part of the like relatively large uh, Jewish community in St. John, like in the, the early 20th century. A large landing port for all kinds of immigrants, and I think a lot of people ended up leaving. Uh, mm-hmm. Today, there's a very small Jewish population in St. John, but Cohen, I think, goes to the States pretty early on in his, in his life. Um, and then after the war, he ends up also back in the States in New York, and uh, he... <laughs> Becomes a psychotherapist and founds oh, what is yes. <laughs> what is uh, called in various sources a cult, uh, and it's like this really horrible community, like based around him as like the central figure of like yeah. you know solving all your life's problems and everything. So once I got to that part of his biography, I was like, oh, okay, maybe we won't. Anyway, he, there's an obituary in the New York Times uh, from 1991 <laughs> about him that is worth reading if you uh, if you haven't hit your monthly. Uh, Paywall New limit Times. on the New York Times. <laughs> we'll link to that obituary. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's uh, so to me that's the most dramatic time. end to a to a uh, totally. Canadian volunteer's life. Yeah. This episode was written by me, Karina Mixon, produced by us, um, and supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. I have no idea what the next episode is going to be, but I bet it's going to be interesting. <laughs> So listen in. <laughs> no pass around. <laughs>